So our main topic, our first topic, as we look through the Book of Mormon topically, is who is Jesus? What do we know about him? What does the Book of Mormon reveal about the identity of Christ and the depth of that identity? You could spend a lifetime just unlocking Jesus in the Book of Mormon. So what I want to do is I want to come to who is he? And last time we went two extremes. I'm going to put them up and I'm going to make them vertical now. So we saw that one aspect of who he is, is that he answered the ends of the law. He answered everything that the law demands of us. And so he claimed infinite rights of mercy. That was our topic last week. And that thought that Jesus claimed infinite rights of mercy. How many people can he save? How many? There's no limit. Could we have one more world? Could Heavenly Father have five more worlds? How many? And infinite mercy depth-wise. How many of your individual sins could he cleanse? It is false doctrine to teach, and I've heard it my whole life. It is false doctrine to teach, and I think they do it to try to make us feel guilty. I think it's an act of control, but if you hadn't committed that sin, Jesus would have suffered less. Shame on you for making him suffer. And I understand the motive is to get me to not sin, but is that true? If I committed one less sin in my life, would he have suffered less? The answer is no. Why? What's the doctrine? You cannot suffer less if, you're infinite, if your suffering was infinite. And the sum of all of our sins is a finite number. And his suffering was infinite. Just allow me to beat that into all of our heads. He has infinite rights of mercy. He can save anyone he wants. Now, does he save ever, ever, anyone he wants? No, because it would be an act of cruelty to put someone in the celestial kingdom who doesn't want to be there. But could he? Could he put Lucifer in the celestial kingdom? He could. There are no holes in his rights of mercy. Infinite rights of mercy. Now, the other thing we talked about is that justice demands a withdrawal of the spirit. When I sin, justice demands that there's a withdrawal between me and God. And yet Jesus bought the right to say, I can be with them anytime I want. He bought the right, and I love the wording in the Book of Mormon. He can snatch me from any level of darkness. He doesn't have to wait. He can snatch. And the Book of Mormon illustrates that, right? Alma, it's almost as if he's just waiting for Alma to repent. And the moment Alma turns to him, he snatches him. So that was a glimpse coming into focus. I want to take that aspect of the Redeemer <coughs> and bring that into focus. But today we're going to go this direction. Because I want to take two other concepts and bring them to the center and have you see who he was and how he became Messiah, and how he became qualified 
to save us. Paying a debt of justice is one aspect. That's going to be our vertical axis. But now I want to talk about a payment he made in Gethsemane that I don't think was payment for sin. As I understand the doctrine here, I don't think this was required to pay the debt to justice. (coughs) I think (coughs) what we're going to talk about today was him choosing to become Redeemer and Savior. I think this was voluntary, and he chose to do this so that he could be with us and and save us. So turn with me to Alma chapter (coughs) 7. Sorry. Alma chapter 7 is perhaps one of the greatest restorations of truth. If you were to pinpoint me, if I fell into a hole and said, you can't get out of this hole until you tell us one little, one single restoration of truth that has been most eye-opening for you, this is it. I cannot find this concept taught clearly in the Bible. And yet this completely changes for me who he is and what he did. Alma chapter 7, Alma has left the judgment seat. He's going around preaching. He goes to Gideon, which was obviously a very righteous place because he doesn't rebuke them like he does so many of the others. And what he does is he teaches them about Christ. So verse 11. So we're going to do what we did last time and assume that all of these payments are infinite. The atonement was infinite. We won't take the time, but you may want to, you, one of these days, you may want to go through the Book of Mormon and identify every time the Book of Mormon applies the word infinite with the atonement. It was infinite. The payment was infinite. The coverage is infinite. Every aspect of his atonement is infinite, including this aspect. Sorry, let me get it up. Okay, there it is. Alma chapter 11, I want to focus on Sorry, Alma 7. Let's start in verse 11. Let's take this phrase, and this is our infinity. What else does the Messiah take to an infinite level? And our first word is pains. Jesus takes all human pain to an infinite level. Now, let's go breadth and depth. How many human pains could there possibly be? Let me just take one, breaking of an arm, okay? How many ways could I break my arm? I mean, you can imagine every single possible square inch of my arm I could twist it, I could compound it, I mean, I could green streak fracture it. How many ways has Jesus experienced the breaking of his arm? Every single possible scenario. As a child, as an old man, as everything in between. How many ways has he broken his arm? This direction. And how long did each break last? How long did he suffer with that pain? Five minutes? Two seconds each break? How long was each break? An eternity. 
every possible pain for an infinite level of time. Wouldn't you agree that anything less would not be an infinite atonement? So now expand that beyond just breaking of arms. Tell me a pain he experienced somehow. How about childbirth? How many possible pains are associated with childbirth? Does he know them all? Has he, in essence, had a C-section? An ectopic pregnancy? Has he lost the baby? Does he know abortion? Does he know rape? How many human pains? An infinite variety. Now, how long did he suffer each pain? How well does he know the pain of losing a child in childbirth? Do you see the magnitude of what he accomplished? Every human pain, pain of every kind, and pain to what duration? So let's add the next word. What's the next word Alma adds? Affliction. Name something that afflicts someone you love. Name an affliction. Name something you would list as an affliction. Okay, autism. How many, how, where has Jesus been on the autism spectrum? Every single possible. And how long did he live with autism in that particular way? How well does he know that particular aspect of autism? He was autistic for how long? Eternity. In every possible way. Name something else that afflicts someone you love. Okay. A loss of a job. A loss of anything. Tell me what Jesus has lost. Has he lost an election? Has he lost a job? Has he lost a loved one? Has he lost body parts? Has he lost hope? Every human affliction. There's a lot of depression in my family. How many varieties of depression has Jesus experienced? Every single one of them. And how long? How depressed has the Messiah been? Can you imagine infinite depression? Now, I don't understand how this happened. My human brain cannot comprehend that. Because my brain says, if he had to suffer infinite depression, he's depressed today. He's infinitely depressed. I don't know how that works. He wasn't depressed when he showed up to Joseph Smith. But he knows infinite depression. How about addiction? Does he know addiction? To how many substances, in essence, has Jesus been addicted? Every single one of them. 
And how long did he deal with that addiction? An eternity. Does he know what it's like to quit smoking? Does he understand why some people go back and stop or re revert? Does he understand what it's like to quit smoking? This astounds me. Every pain, every affliction. Give me the next one. Temptation. How many varieties of temptation? Every one of them. And how long? You know, we watch shows where people, you know, like are trying to lose weight and we tempt them with food. And it's like, okay, there comes a point where no one could resist, right? How far does he go? How long and to what degree does his temptation go? So what did he learn by that? What did he buy? Does he understand what it's like to yield to a temptation? Does he, does he say, oh, I know why you gave in. I know exactly why. I've been there. He knows every single temptation. Give me the next word. Sickness. Every possible sickness, every disease. Has Jesus had Lou, Lou Gehrig's disease? Every rare, every disease. How about every mental sickness? Every variety and how long? That's astounding. The next one fascinates me. He shall take upon himself death. Now, we're going to apply that same word. He shall take upon himself death of every kind. So in essence, how many ways has he died? Every single possible way. Painfully, over a long period of time, has he had leprosy and gone all the way with it? Did he have COVID? Cancer? How many forms of cancer? Every one of them. This is astounding if you understand what he was going through in the atoning sacrifice. Every affliction, every pain, every sickness every possible way to die. Has he been shot, hung, crushed? No one goes out of this world in any way he doesn't know. And how long did that agony of death last him? An eternity. So we add death to the list. And I don't know exactly what's an infirmity but do you get the idea? Tell me what the Book of Mormon is teaching about who this man is. What is he accomplishing? As we come into this circle, as, as we begin to focus in on who he is, what is this whole side of the equation telling you? What did he buy with this? Tell me what he bought with this. Annalise? Okay, so he knows how to, let's list all the how-tos, okay? He knows 
I want to just see if we can put these up in phrases. He claimed infinite rights of mercy. He can snatch me from any depth of darkness. He knows how to finish that phrase. What do you mean empathy, Amanda? Okay, so he knows how to comfort. Now, is there anyone else? A phrase we use often when we're in pain and someone tries to comfort us, what do we say? You don't understand. Meaning what? What do we mean by that? You're not helping me. Have you ever had someone try and comfort you in a way that was actually hurting you? My mom lost, my brother died when he was 12. My mom lost a child. And she said so many people in trying to comfort her said things that were very, very hurtful. You don't understand means what? This isn't the help I need. You are not helping me. Can I give you an example? <clears throat> when my, my wife had 10 children, we have 10 kids. When we went in for the very first one and she's in labor, and she looked over at me like this hurt. I never, I, I had no idea how, how painful this would be. And I'm trying to comfort her. Now, what's the look on her face trying to say to me? <laughs> you don't understand. You are not helping. You being here is not comforting to me. You're not helping. And I'll never forget her mom walked in who also gave birth to 10 children. And I was so angry because I had spent all day trying to comfort her. Her mom walks in and guess what the look on her, my wife's face said? Oh, someone who understands. And that gives me hope. You made it through. I can too. There's something about I understand. I know exactly what to say, when to say it, who should say it, everything. So I love where this one goes. Why did he do all of this? That. Anyone want to read? What did he buy? Annalise? That his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to it. He knows how to succor. Does he know when to hold back because you need to row a little bit longer? Does he know the moment I can't go any further? Do you remember when he walks on the water? When does he finally come to them? The fourth watch. Why not an hour earlier? <coughs> Why that moment? Why not an hour earlier? Because he knew what? You need to row. For your sake, you need to row a little bit longer. I'm not going to save you right now. You need to keep rowing. Why didn't he wait an hour longer? They, he knew. You wouldn't have made it. When does he come? When did he come that night? The one moment he knew was the moment to save you. Do you remember when, he, when Elijah goes into Zarephath and finds the widow woman? Do you remember what she was doing? Gathering sticks to make her last meal. And what's Elijah going to do? Extend her food. Did the Lord know exactly when to send Elijah? Third Nephi, the believers are going to be put to death if the sign isn't given. 
when does it sound like the sign was given? Because what Nephi's out praying, right? Nephi is earnestly praying that tonight the sign will be given, which would probably suggest what? He came the night before. Does he know that moment in your life? He knows how to sucker. Now, give me another one that this doesn't necessarily say, but is implied. What would coming to know the whole human experience allow him to do better? Comfort is one. Amanda? Um, well, he has the infinite rights of mercy, but I feel like him experiencing all of this allows him an opportunity to apply that mercy. So I don't know if this is the word you're going for, but I'm going to write this one. He knows how to judge. He knows how to judge. Because why? He's experienced it. Tell me your name. It's Cade. Cade. Yes. What would you add, Cade? I would add he knows how to teach. He knows exactly. Now, here's what's beautiful. Do we sometimes overdo it? Can I give you an example? I have a friend who got a note from her, her teachers, I think it was third grade, third or fourth grade teacher, saying, please teach your son to, to tie his shoe. And she was embarrassed until she realized what? I just always did it for him. And he just always let me. Because she was overdoing, right? Is there an opposite to that? That's beautiful to understand who, what right he gained, what he came to know. He knows how to sucker. He knows how to judge. He knows how to teach. Anything else you would add? What did coming to know the infinite human experience bring him? What did he buy? So we talked about paying infinite guilt bought him infinite rights of mercy. Being infinitely abandoned by God and cut off by God bought him the rights to snatch in that darkness. What else does this buy him? He knows how to judge. He knows how to comfort. He knows how to teach. Okay. He knows how to fix. He knows how to heal. He bought an understanding of when and how and who should do it. Now, we could spend a lot of time here, but don't you just want to sing, I stand all amazed? When you ponder what he came to understand. Maybe one more quotation. I love this quotation from Cheiko Okasaki. And I put this in slide format for you. Let me remember where. Yeah, we'll just pull up the quotation. While you're looking, I guess one of the questions I have is, um, you were saying that you don't necessarily think um, that this type of um, taking this, all of this on, wasn't necessarily... A debt to justice. A debt to justice, but wouldn't he have needed to feel that in order to be the judge, which is part of being... I see what you're saying, and I, I 100% agree. Uh, it, my only thinking is this isn't a debt I have to pay if I don't accept his. 
but what, what, what debt will I pay if I don't accept his offering? I will pay guilt and an abandonment from God, right? I won't necessarily pay all of these things if I don't accept his atonement. But yes, answering this end allows him to judge. I see exactly what you're saying. Let's read this. And I know it's kind of small, but I'll read. Jesus experienced the totality of mortal existence in Gethsemane. Let me just ponder, let you ponder that. The totality of human existence. Has Jesus been gay? The answer is yes. For how long? In eternity. Has he been higher than any human being has ever climbed and lower than any human being has ever dove? Jesus experienced the totality of mortal existence in Gethsemane. It is our faith that he experienced everything, absolutely everything. Sometimes we don't think through the implications of that belief. We talk in great generalities about the sins of all humankind, about the suffering of the entire human family. But we do not experience pain in generalities. Could Jesus have just simply... Do you just dump the culmination of pain on it? It doesn't work that way, does it? You have to experience each individual pain. We don't experience pain in generality. We experience it individually. That means that Jesus know what it, knew what it, knows what it felt like when your mother died of cancer, how it was for your mother and how it still is for you. He knows what it felt like to lose the student body election. He knows that moment where the brakes locked and the car started to skid. He experienced the slave ship failing, sailing from Ghana towards Virginia. Did any slave in this country experience anything that Jesus doesn't know intimately and to an infinite level. He knows, he experienced the slave ship sailing from Ghana towards Virginia. He experienced the gas chambers of Ducao. He experienced napalm in Vietnam. He knows about drug addiction and alcoholism. Now he's speaking to women, so if you're a male, you can apply it to you in a different way. There is nothing you have, no, yeah, there is nothing you have experienced as a woman that he also doesn't know and recognize. On a profound level, he understands about pregnancy and giving birth. He knows about PMS and cramps and menopause. He understands about rape and infertility and abortion. He understands your mother pain when your five-year-old leaves for kindergarten, when a bully picks on your fifth grader, when your daughter calls to say that the new baby has Down syndrome. He knows your mother rage when a trusted babysitter sexually abuses your two-year-old, when someone gives your 13-year-old drugs, when someone seduces your 17-year-old. He knows the pain you live with when you come home to a quiet apartment where the only children who ever come are visitors, when you hear that your former husband and his new wife were sealed in the temple last week, when your 50th wedding anniversary rolls around and your husband has been dead for two years. He knows all that. He's been there. He's been lower than all that. So let me just emphasize this side, that Jesus came to know in an infinite level the human experience. I love that phrase, the totality 
of mortal existence. Now, let's do this one. Let me, we're going to spend most of our time in the Book of Mormon, but let me kick this off in the, new, in the Pearl of Great Price. Turn with me to Moses chapter 1 in the Pearl of Great Price. Do you remember what Moses sees in Moses 1? Blows him away. Tell me what Moses sees in Moses 1. All of the world's Heavenly Father has created. Every possible world. And then, not only that, but every possible human. Every particle of our life. Starting in verse 27, Moses cast his eyes and beheld the earth, even all of it. And there was not a particle of it he did not behold. Now, this is symbolic and literal at the same time. He also beheld all the inhabitants thereof, and there was not a soul he beheld not. Did he see Donald Trump lose to, or Hillary Clinton lose to Donald Trump in the election? Has he seen who you marry? Has he seen you giving birth to children? Does he know the day you're going to die? Does he know how? Moses saw all of the human beings. Now, what must that have been? A little overwhelming, a little blow you away. And so the Lord speaks to him. He says in verse 33, worlds without number have I created. And I created them for my own purpose. Now, I'm only going to tell you about this world. For there are many worlds which have passed away by the word of my power, and there are many that now stand, and innumerable are they unto me. Uh, no, sorry, innumerable are they unto man. But all things are numbered unto me, for they are mine, and I know them. He's not speaking about planets. What's he speaking about? People. What are the three words he uses? He numbers, he claims, and he knows. So we're going to start really big, and then we're going to go really, really small. And I want you to see the symbolism of this. Because God is looking at all of his creations and says, I know every single one of them. I have numbered every single one of them. I claim them. He numbers, claims, and knows every world. Now watch what the Book of Mormon beautifully does. We're just going to get smaller and smaller and smaller, and he's going to say, it doesn't matter. I can go that low. I can get to that level. So what's smaller than a world? Turn to the title page of the Book of Mormon. Title page of the Book of Mormon. The one that says, an account taken by or, a nation. That's exactly where we're going. Title page of the Book of Mormon. This one right here. Sorry, I'm not sick. I just have something stuck in my throat. 
So the Book of Mormon account written by the hand of Mormon upon plates taken from the plates of Nephi. In this second paragraph, he's talking about the purpose of writing. Why did they write the book? This book was written to show, and then three things. Why, why was the book written? Number one, because if God did great things in the past, then he'll do great things today. If the stripling warriors were miraculously saved because they heeded a prophet, then so will you. If he did great things in the past, he'll do great things today, even in 2023. The second thing, the Book of Mormon was written so that we know the covenants. I need to know faith and repentance and baptism, gift of the Holy Ghost. I need to know what to do to come unto him. And that's what's in the book. But then this third one, and we love to quote this third one, don't we? But we end it too soon. Most people say the Book of Mormon was written to convince Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, and we put a period there. But my copy of the Book of Mormon doesn't have a period there, does it? How many of you need to know? How many of you need to be convinced that Jesus is the Christ. Annalise, do you need to be convinced of that? No. Do you right now in your life need to be convinced that Jesus is the Christ? No. You know that. So do you still need the Book of Mormon? Or would you say, once you know Jesus is the Christ, you don't need the Book of Mormon anymore? Do you see why we can't put a period there? The purpose of the Book of Mormon is more than just to declare that he's the Christ. It's to tell you what the Christ does. And this is why I still read the Book of Mormon. I know he's the Christ, but I need to know what he does as the Christ. So he numbers, claims, and knows every world. Now what's next? He manifests himself. To every nation. Do you see how he's going smaller? And yet he's still making that personal connection. Is there a nation in the Book of Mormon to whom he does not manifest himself? Name a nation mentioned in the Book of Mormon. The what? Okay, so the Nephites. Does he manifest himself to the Nephites? Does he manifest himself to the Lamanites, the bad guys? Does he manifest himself to the Mulekites? Does he manifest himself to the Gentiles? Book of Mormon mentions Gentiles, mentions Jews. Is there a nation in the Book of Mormon that the Book of Mormon doesn't talk about him manifesting himself to that nation? Will he manifest himself to my nation? Is Jesus manifesting himself in China and North Korea? He will manifest himself to every nation. Let's peel back another layer. Let's go smaller. Let's see if he's connected to even a smaller group. He numbers, claims, and knows every world. He manifests himself to every nation. So what would be smaller than a nation? We would say a state, but what would the scripture say? A kindred tongue or people. So let's go to... Alma chapter 26. And as soon as we go there, you should, that should ring a bell, right? Tell me what Alma 26 is. It's Ammon rejoicing in what God did to 
a group of Lamanites. Did he, do, did, he say, did he save the whole nation of the Lamanites? No. So this is a smaller group. Pretty big, but still a smaller group. So Alma chapter 26, go to the very last verse. And let's apply all these words. He's getting smaller, and yet each word is tied to every level. So the last verse of chapter 26. Tell me what kind of God we have. Sorry. What kind of God do we have? He is mindful of every people. He is mindful of every people. He's getting smaller, and yet is his attention breaking off. He is mindful of every people. And I love that we begin to include some of the previous words, right? Whatsoever land they may be in, yea, he numbereth his people, and his bowels of mercy are over all the earth. Even though we're getting smaller and smaller, is his attention waning or going away or dropping off? Okay, let's keep going. What's smaller than a people? Me. Me. Now we're going to Mosiah 27. And again, you should, that should ring a bell, right? What's the story of Mosiah 27? Is it Alma? It's Alma the Younger a rebellious doofus that God should have kicked to the curb, not cared about. He should have squashed him like a bug. He was an enemy to his purposes. He fought against him. And yet, what does Alma stand up and testify? Alma chapter 27, verse 30. Right after, remember this one? Right after in verse 29, what did he say? I am snatched. We saw that last week. But right after that, he says, I rejected my Redeemer and denied that which had been spoken of by our fathers. But now that they may foresee that he will come and that he, I think this might be the theme of the Book of Mormon. He remembereth every creature of his creating. And notice we keep going back to previous words. He will make himself manifest unto each and all. No matter how small we get, what's the connection to Christ? Could you use every single word if we go remembers Every creature. Does that mean every bug? Every bug? Every person? Now, could we use, do you see how he's, he's interchanging all of these words with every level? Which means it doesn't matter the depth, it doesn't matter the size. I... Number, claim, and know every bug. 
every creature. I, am my, I will manifest myself unto every one of you. I am mindful of every one of you. You see the testimony of the Book of Mormon that not only does he know intimately the human experience, but what is this side trying to say? He also knows intimately you. Now we're going to put those together in just a minute, but I want to go one level smaller. What's smaller than a person? What so easily gets lost where there's lots of people? A little person, a child. Do you remember what Jesus does to each and every child? Third Nephi 17. Now these two become very significant, and we're now going to see if we can make the connection from both directions. Third Nephi 17, he's with the children. He asks them to come. And then, verse 21. When he said these words, he wept, and the multitude bear record of it, and he took their little children one by one. And what does he do for each child? He has a blessing. There is a blessing he wants for each child. Do you suspect they all got the same blessing? You know that's not the case, right? Does he have a blessing for you? Does he have a plan for your life? And is he asking the Father to grant you what he knows is the blessing that you need? Does Christ have a plan for every single one of us? Does he have a blessing? for your life today and tomorrow and the week after that and 10 years from now and 100 years from now. Does he have a blessing? Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put these two together. I got to say blesses and praise for. He has a blessing for you. He will manifest himself to you. He is mindful of what you need. Now put those two together. He knows you and he knows the human experience. Tell me what he does with those two. He knows which of these each of you need. He knows how to put those two together. Which means he knows how to save you. He knows what human pains and afflictions and sorrows you need. That is astounding. But that's the Jesus we worship. He is not a distant God, is he? He is a very involved in your life. And he has a blessing for you. And he has identified which of those you need. So let me pitch what I believe is a true doctrine. 
What does that suggest about your life? What does that suggest about the individual life that you led? Because sometimes we look at our others and say, man, I wish I'd had that life. I wish that would have been my path. But what does this teach about your life? It's designed by him to tailor fit you. Let me see if I can show that to you. Turn with me to the allegory of the tame and the wild olive tree in Jacob 5. The tame and the wild olive tree. One of the great additions, one of the great restorations of the Book of Mormon, because this is an Old Testament chapter that got cut out. There is no book of Zenos in our current Old Testament. But clearly, he was phenomenal. And Jacob puts this entire allegory. Now, there's two ways to read this allegory. I will liken thee to a tree. That's all of us. This is the story of the house of Israel. From Adam, Abraham, down to the restoration. It's going to include the apostasy. You can see Laman and Lemuel. You can see the Nephites. It's going to tell the story of the house of Israel. But what else does that word mean? I will liken you to a tree. And there's going to be times where this tree starts to decay. Now, we'll come back to that in just a minute, but I want to take you to a fascinating verse in this chapter. Jacob chapter 5. Sorry, let me get to it in this version. Jacob chapter 5. Let's go all the way down to this intriguing question in verse 41. Now, there's going to be some questionable things that the Lord of the vineyard does to the tree. He's going to do some questionable things. And he's going to be called on it. Why? Why did you wait till I was that age to help me find my eternal companion? <clears throat> Why didn't you call me where you originally called me on a mission? Why a pandemic in 2020? Why the cancer? All those questions. He's going to be called on every single one of the things I experienced. And he's going to simply ask and answer this question. <coughs> what could I have done more for my vineyard? What did you want me to do in your life? What kind of life did you want to lead? And then he answers the question. What could I have done more for my vineyard? Have I slackened my hand that I've not nourished it? Nay, I've nourished it. I've digged it. I've pruned it. I've dunged it. I've stretched forth my hand, and I don't want to lose it. And one more time, he asked the question, what could I have done for my vineyard? What's the answer? What's the answer to the question? Nothing. Meaning what? Let me let that distill upon you. What's the application? Your life is Finish that sentence. Your life is of uh, divine design. Your best shot at salvation. Because if someone else's life would have given you a better shot at salvation, what would that God have done? I would have given it to you. 
your life is what he knows. He knows you and he knows the human experience and he put those two together. Which means every challenge I've experienced was him knowing what I needed. Now I can push back and doubt him and be angry at him or I can accept his help and his guidance. That is a profound doctrine if you think about it. He knows exactly why I was born when I was born and the circumstances I needed to go through. So let's talk about what he does to this vineyard. Let's use some very intriguing words. Um, I'm going to turn our to this. How do we take this into our lives, but also at the same time take it into account like personal agency? And I think the agency, I don't choose the events that happen to me, right? Is that my agency? Did I choose the day I was born and the family I came into and the, the body I was given? Those don't seem to be my agency. What is my agency? how I respond to those. So he chose the events that I best needed and I choose how to respond. The brilliance of the Book of Mormon is it begins with two people about the same place who go through the exact same trials. How does one respond? Versus how does the other respond? The Book of Mormon begins with the story of Laman and Lemuel becoming very different people because they went through different things? No. They didn't choose different events, right? They didn't choose different things to happen to them. Who chose those things? The Lord chose those things. What did Laman and Lemuel, what did Laman and Nephi choose? How to respond. And there's my agency. What is it that you want? What do you want out of life? And how do you respond to life? but I don't pick the events of my life. He picks the events. So there's his agency merged with my agency. Do you see how that's a necessary thing? If I chose the events of my life, what choices would I make? Very different life, right? Now, if that life were better for me, then what would he have done? So I have to conclude that choosing the events of my life would not be good for me. So I'm gonna let him choose the events of my life and I'm gonna choose how to respond to them, how to react to them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I'm just gonna, sorry, I'm just asking these questions for clarity. What about like through the agency of others? Like what if somebody else, is, somebody else exercises their agency and brings me a negative experience out of my control? Would that still be technically tailored even though that goes into somebody else's personal agency? Yeah. Do you see how complicated? Now, the reason you're asking the question is how could one God know all that? How could he so perfectly arrange that, that I was where I needed to be and that person chose what they chose and it was best for me and it was, that is the God that we worship. So let me answer that with another Book of Mormon scripture and we're going to have to make our point very quickly, but I, you raise a great question. Do you remember when Alma and Amulek were brought before the burning women and children and were forced to watch it? And Amulek says, can't we stop this? Can't we stop their suffering? Can't we stop bad people doing good, bad things to them? And Alma says, I can't. 
four. I can't stop this because, number one, what does he say? True, but why? why? Why was the Spirit stopping him? The Lord receiveth them up unto himself in glory. In other words, he can fix. He can fix what other people break. He won't let them go too far. He can fix what other people break. And why does he allow them to do it? Why does he let bad people hurt me? He has to have judgment. He has to be just on their punishments. And if they never hurt, if they never do bad, can he do? So he has to balance their agency and my agency. But I love this promise to Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail. I love this promise. Sorry, I don't have my glasses. I'm going blind here. I love this promise in section 122. Hold on thy way, the priesthood shall remain with thee, for, what does it say? Their bounds are set, they cannot pass. Meaning, I won't let anything happen to you that isn't my purpose. Nothing happens to you that isn't my purpose. Their bounds are set. They cannot pass, thy days are known, and thy years shall not be numbered less. Now that's astounding. So let me do this really quickly. Sorry to rush this, but what does he do to the tree? Go back to Jacob chapter 5. What does he do to the tree? Go to verse 7. Now, notice, notice in verse 3, it starts to decay. So round one is prune, dig, nourish. Doesn't help, and it starts to perish. So round two, tell me what he does in verse 7. What does God sometimes do to you? What human events does he pick for you? Plucking events. And what's the act of plucking? You take something in my life that I love and I don't want to let go of, and you do what? You rip it out. He knows which things to pluck. Sometimes he knows which people to pluck. He knows me. He plucks opportunities sometimes. There are things he has taken out of my life because he knows what he's doing. I didn't choose those events, did I? but he chose them. Okay, verse 9, what else does he do? He plucks and then he... What is the act of grafting in? You take something I never thought I'd have to deal with and shove it into my life, like cancer, financial challenges, Social problems, family problems. I know people who never thought they'd have to deal with divorce and they find themselves divorced. Plucked and grafted. Verse 11, name another one. Sorry, verse 13, name another one. Sometimes he places, he takes you and puts you where? 
where you never thought you'd be. How many of you find yourself exactly in the spot you dreamed you'd be in when you were a child? Sometimes he places. Now watch this, ready? He plucks, he grasps, he places. And then in verse 15, a long time passed. And they go back to see what happened. Let's go back to the tree that got plucked and placed. And what do they discover? It had sprung forth and begun to bear fruit. It was good. And what does he say? Now, with all my soul, I'm going to testify of the human events he chose you to experience. If we had not, the tree would have perished. I testify of that intimate knowledge in your life. If he hadn't plucked and grafted and placed, he would have lost you. And he is not going to lose you. So let's go to the tree in the nethermost part of the vineyard. Let's go to the tree that got placed. And what's happening to that tree? I didn't mark this, but it brought forth much fruit. Now the servant starts the questions. Why? Why did you do that? Why did you take my mother when I was a teenager? Why, did that, why the loss of the job? Why the cancer? Why? And he answers with five words. And if you want to know who is the God of the Book of Mormon, here is the God of the Book of Mormon. I know the human experience intimately. I know you intimately. I know how to put them together to save you. And when we say, why, Lord? Why did that happen? It shouldn't have happened. There was a better way to save me. What does he say? I love these five words from the Book of Mormon. Counsel me not. Why? I knew. Where did he buy that knowledge? In, the Geth in Gethsemane. Now, do you see who the God of the Book of Mormon is? I stand all amazed at who he is. And let me be very, very clear. I testify he is that God. That he owns infinite rights of mercy. That he can snatch at any moment. That he knows the human experience every aspect and he knows you now put all those together and what do you have you have jesus of nazareth savior and king 
Don't you love the Book of Mormon? What would we do without it? Again, an observation. People who leave the church don't join any other church. Have you noticed that? How many of you love someone who's left the church? Raise your hands high. Put your hand down if they went and joined another church. One, no hand, no hands. Why aren't they joining other churches? Why do people leave the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and not go join? There's a thousand churches out there. Why not join one of them? If you don't like this one, go find another one. Why can't people leave the church and join another? Because it's true. Because they can't walk away from this Jesus. You have to go. Thank you. You bet. This was like the best like 40 minutes of just like doctrine. <laughs> it's like this every class. <laughs> Come back. Okay, we will. Do you see that? I can't help but think part of the reason people can't go out and find another church is because they, this is the Jesus they want. And he, no one knows about him. The only people know about him have what in their hand? The Book of Mormon. Whitney? Between me and God, but if this is the Christ that they want, then why do they run so far away and get upset that? You know, I guess people. It's not him they run away from. It's the church they run away from. Um, okay. But they—that's their dilemma—is how do I run away from the church? Because if they, if they were willing to run away from the doctrine, wouldn't they be totally fine with any church? But I think part of the dilemma is they don't think this Jesus runs that church. I feel like a lot of people don't know on this level. Yeah. Like, I feel like knowing Christ on this level takes, like, you have to study. You got it. A lot of people don't want to put in the effort or they just... Maybe they do, but they're not doing it. I don't know. They're just not doing it in the ways that they And there's a reality here that scares us, doesn't it? Because I'd like to just blame my pain on randomness, not intention. But they can't blame my pain on randomness if this is the Christ. And that means those things are for my good. And that's a hard lesson sometimes. Well, and it's also kind of what we talked about last time, how you said how particular people want, like, certain things that God isn't bringing them because God knows that they need something else. But no, I want that. Do you remember what yep. I'm talking about? Yep. Yep. It's New Testament blindness, right? They rejected Jesus because he wasn't what they wanted him to be. Yep. I leave you my testimony of this Messiah. He is. He's that Messiah. Counsel me not. I knew. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.